Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, as we continue what I'm calling a toppositional sermon series, we look at this topic of hope and then preaching expositional messages from various passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that deal with this topic. This morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 in a sermon I've entitled, The Persuasion of Hope. The Persuasion of Hope. About 17 years ago, whenever I was a full-time youth pastor, youth minister, um, I had one of the dads of one of the kids in my youth group call me up, and he said, uh, hey, Troy, I'd like to take you to lunch. And I said, okay, yeah, sure, let's meet. And we went to a diner, met together, talked, and, and over the course of this conversation and lunch, he began to express to me how appreciative he was of my investment in his teenage son and how I'd sacrificed for him and invested into him. And then he said this to me. He said, Troy, you know, the Bible says in the book of First Peter that the tested genuineness of your faith is like refined gold. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I said, well, I'm all for somebody blessing me. What do you got? I didn't say it like that. But he said, you may think I'm a little odd. And he pulled out of his pocket a plastic sleeve filled with gold coins. And he says, this is my gift to you because of the precious genuineness of your faith and the way you've expressed that to me. He says, I don't expect you to keep this gold. I want you to go cash it in and use the cash however you see fit. I said, well, thank you so much, not knowing how much was in this sleeve. So that week I found a place where I could sell it. It was $1,000. Amazing. Now, what was the heart response I had as a result of this gracious gift. Gratitude, right? Gratis is Latin for free or gift or grace or favor. This was a gratis, a free gift. And so the natural good and godly response to gratis is gratitude, right? And that's exactly what I experienced. But there's also another unction that can come from something like that that is not good. Not only gratitude, but a feeling of indebtedness. You ever been there? Somebody does something for you or gives you a gift. Now you have this feeling, this sense, oh, now I've got to reciprocate. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. And now I've got to do something for you. So just imagine if after I cashed in that gold, I said, oh my goodness, $1,000. And all of a sudden I show up at his house and I start pulling the weeds out of his flower bed. And I start mowing the grass and trimming the hedges. And he comes outside, Troy, Troy, what are you doing? What would his response be? And what would my response be? I would say, well, you gave me $1,000. I'm just going to work off this $1,000 by different chores until I think I've completely compensated you for this gift. Number one, that would be weird, right? <laughs> Number two, that negates grace. That removes the grace aspect of the gift. You see, this idea of indebtedness can often be what even motivates us in our Christian life. I've got to pay God back. Listen, you live your life to pay God back, it nullifies grace. Grace is grace. He doesn't lavish his grace on you to try to manipulate you into doing something for him. But it's interesting, how many of you have heard a preacher say something like this? God's done so much for you, what have you done for him? Right? 
That's the debtor's ethic. You are indebted to God, so you've got to live a life of paying him back. Now, should we sacrifice for the Lord? Yes. Should we live lives of obedience to God? Yes, but the motivation is the key here. The Scripture does not say we are motivated to work for God, to serve God, to live holy lives as a means of paying Him back because that nullifies grace. Let me tell you another word for this, not only indebtedness, but another word for this kind of a mindset is this, legalism. Legalism. This is a twisted form of legalism. It's a bondage. Oh, no. To earn God's favor, I've got to do this. In response to God's grace, I'm obligated to do this. This is the exact opposite of what Christ has come to do for us. Christ has come to set us free. He's not come to put us under bondage. Christ has not come to put us under legalism, but to put us in liberty. And that's what we're going to focus on today is from Galatians chapter 5. It's really about the motivation for what we do in our lives as Christians. So let's read Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first five verses together. Here's what the Bible says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I've told you from the beginning of this summer series that one of the difficulties in doing a topositional series is we don't have the ongoing context of that book. So real quickly, here's the context of the book of Galatians. It's all about liberty. It's all about freedom from legalism and freedom from the law and oppression. It's really three sections, this book of Galatians. The first section, chapters 1 and 2, are really the historical argument that Paul presents. Paul is talking about his own life and the testimony of others and on the basis of his own experience why legalism doesn't work. You go to chapters 3 and chapter 4, he moves from the historical argument to the theological argument where he presents several different passages of Scripture to present this concept that works is it nullifies grace. And you move to now chapter 5, where we're starting. It's the practical argument. These are the practical things where the real rubber meets the road in our lives, how law and grace don't mix together, how historically, doctrinally, practically, grace supersedes works as the only way to God. Now, I've told you before, there are really only, when you boil it all down, there are really only two world religions, the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. That's it. Now, you say, no, there's hundreds of religions. There may be even thousands of religions in the world. Listen, all the other isms, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, they're all human accomplishment or human achievement. Only the true religion, only the true religion of God is the one of divine accomplishment. Even when you get some visitors on your doorsteps from the Jehovah's Witnesses or from the 
Mormons. They actually like to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They, they find Mormons as a, an offensive term, so don't call them that. Be kind. It's still human achievement. It's all about what you must do to earn position with God. Now, throughout the history of mankind, these two religions, the religion of human accomplishment and the religion of divine accomplishment or human achievement, they have been at odds with each other. The world system is really Satan's religious system, this one of human achievement. So this morning, as we look in Galatians, which really jumps right in the middle of these two conflicts between human achievement and divine accomplishment, we see here the issue has to do with bringing on Judaism and requirements of Judaism to the human, uh, to the divine accomplishment of God. And let me ask a question as we maybe come around the idea for my sermon this morning. What is your motivation for living for God? What motivates you to live for God, to live a holy life, or to use my sermon title? What persuades you to live righteously? I've mentioned already a couple things that should not be our motivation. One, we shouldn't live holy lives as we're trying to earn God's approval. That's a wrong motivation. We shouldn't be persuaded to live holy lives or righteously because we're trying to pay God back this sense of indebtedness. Those are unhealthy and ultimately unbiblical motivations for living. So I pray by the end of this message, we'll have a biblical motivation for living the Christ life, for living for Jesus. Five verses we read, there's five points on my outline connected to those five verses. Let's consider them together. Number one, the command to stand. The theme of the entire book of Galatians can really be summed up in verse one of chapter five. He says again, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm. There's the command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the whole book of Galatians is freedom versus slavery, liberty versus legalism. Now this first phrase, the for freedom Christ has set us free, that sounds a little redundant, doesn't it? If I said something like, it is for reading that I read. It is for drinking that I've poured this drink, you know? That's, what are you talking about? But this is actually quite profound in its redundancy. It is for freedom, it is for liberty, that you've been liberated. Christ set you free so that you might be free. This is profound. And so then he says, don't submit again. Here's the command. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, this Galatian church was made up of primarily Gentile Christian converts. They did not come from a Jewish background. They came from a pagan background. So let me ask you, In their paganism, was that the religion of divine accomplishment or a religion of human achievement? Human achievement. Whatever false gods they were bowing down to, it was all human achievement. I've got to do this to appease this God. I've got to fulfill this. I've got to follow that. And they've been delivered, delivered, they've been liberated from that human achievement religion and set free in Christ. And so Paul's saying, hey, you've You've abandoned this yoke of slavery and paganism. Don't take up another yoke of slavery and and these religious requirements that people are trying to put upon you. Your former life, my former life, their former life was one of bondage, of performance. 
And Jesus Christ is the great emancipator. Sorry, Abraham Lincoln. He is the great liberator. He is the one who has set us free. And he, his emancipation proclamation and act is what we talked about last week. Regeneration, being born again from death to life. He has set us free. Now, now what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be set free? We, we can often think of this concept of freedom as mainly or only being absence of something negative. In fact, look at this next slide. If you've ever played Monopoly and you're rolling the dice, it's not gambling, don't worry. The money's not real. You're rolling the dice and you land on community chests and you pull this card and you get a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? And notice what it says there. This is, this is good strategy if you're a Monopoly player. You can keep this until needed or you can sell it, right? This is a good card to have. And so the image there is him being set free from the birdcage. And we often think, in fact, look at this next slide. I often see this kind of an image on Christian sites and stuff. This is, this is being set free. The chains are broken. The shackles are gone. And that's completely true. But listen, freedom in Christ is not only the absence of the negative. Look at this next slide. Here, here we go. Freedom in Christ is so much more than the absence of the negative. Freedom in Christ is also the presence of the positive. The presence of the positive. What is the positive? Well, the positive is not a what, but a who. As you continue to read through Galatians chapter 5, you'll find out that the positive is the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to reside within you to empower you to live the Christ life. You'll see the fruit of the Spirit, and in contrast to the desires or the deeds of the flesh as you go through Galatians chapter 5. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. In our society, in our modern culture, we have uh, something known as being institutionalized. You've heard that before, right? He's institutionalized. What does that mean? Well, there's some type of mental disorder. There's some chemical imbalance. There's some, something going on that's awry where this person can't function in society anymore. Either they're a danger to themselves or a danger to others or both. And so what our modern society has determined, the best thing for him or her and us is for them to be put in an institution. Guess what? All of us, away from Christ, were institutionalized. We were in bondage. We were in slavery. Here's freedom in Christ. It's not just that we've been set free from the institution. <laughs> It's that we've now been given the capacity to function within the kingdom. And that capacity is a new mind, a new nature, the very mind of Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Aren't you so thankful that those around you haven't just been set free from the institution, the crazy house, but you have the Spirit of Christ empowering you? Makes church a lot more enjoyable, doesn't it? We're set free, not just the absence of the negative, but the presence of the positive. So that's why Paul gives this command to stand for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's imploring them. Why would you go back to any form of slavery? Why would you put yourself back in the institution when you've been set free? But what are the real results? What are the real consequences when we take on these legalistic demands and the institution and the bondage of slavery. Well, the next three points are really the next three verses that show really the negative consequences. When we do that kind of thing, when we live that kind of life, we make that kind of decision, 
The next one is this, the loss of the cross. The loss of the cross. Look what he says. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and you could put in here any legalistic demand that you want, if you accept it, for the Galatians it was circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ, Jesus, his person, his work, it's a loss. It's of no advantage to you. Now let me tell you what Paul is not saying. He's not saying the act of circumcision is evil. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, he takes Timothy, an adult male, and for mission strategy and influence, he has Timothy circumcised. The act of circumcision is not evil. But the motivation for the circumcision is what could be evil. The motivation for him then was missionary strategy. For the Galatian Judaizers, it was, oh, you ain't fully acceptable to God unless you're circumcised. You're not fully acceptable to God unless you perform this religious act. Same could be said of baptism for New Testament churches, right? We baptize every new believer in Jesus. We do that. But whenever someone comes along and says, oh, no, 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 Baptism is actually the rubber stamp of God's approval. Unless you're baptized, you're not fully accepted by God. That's legalism. That's the loss of the cross. Because what happens is when when you say this type of thing, you must do this, you must perform this religious deed, you are negating the complete sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. And I've told you before and I'll tell you again, I would not want to be a legalist standing on the day of judgment, looking at the Savior, seeing the scars in his hands, and saying, not enough, Lord. I had to add my own two cents to it. The work of Christ is completely sufficient. It is enough. And the acute specific issue for the Galatians was circumcision, but more than likely, that's not your issue, and that's not my issue. The larger principle here is this. If we accept anything any work, any action, as thinking this somehow makes us more acceptable to God, well, it's legalism, and it's bondage, and it negates the power of the cross. It's interesting, the the word there, no advantage in the original language of the Bible, it's actually a financial word. It's an accounting term. In fact, look how some of the other translations put it. ESV puts it this way, Christ will be of no advantage to you, The New American Standard Bible, my personal favorite translation, says Christ will be of no benefit to you. NIV says Christ will be of no value to you. And the New King James says Christ will profit you nothing. See the financial language there, the accounting language? If you're into accounting or business or finance, you know something called a profit and loss statement. Thankfully, I've got two CPAs in my family, so I can understand these things or try to. Profit and loss statement is basically... Correct me if I'm wrong, Casey and Aubrey. (laughs) You've got a column that has your revenue and a column that has your expenses. Is that right, Nick? Close enough. I'm looking to Nick because my daughter will say, you're wrong, Dad. Okay, I'll look to Nick. He's also a finance major and with an MBA. So um, you've got your, your revenue and your expenses, and at the end of that ledger, it tells you if you have a profit or loss. Okay, Debbie's agreeing with me. Okay, it's, we're right, Debbie. That's a profit and loss statement. I should have looked this up before using this as an illustration. (laughs) Track with me here. In the revenue column is the work of 
Jesus. So at the end of the day, your expense column is all your sin. No matter what is in the expense column, the work of Jesus is enough. Listen to this. You try to add to that that revenue column, you zero out the work of Christ. And you're lost. (laughs) The, The work of Jesus is of no account to you. Again, financial language. In fact, two and a half chapters earlier, notice how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, right standing with God, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The loss of the cross. So when we act or we live just with this mindset that, okay, my own goodness is earning favor with God or my acts of righteousness are somehow making me more acceptable to God, we nullify the grace of God. Christ died for no purpose. So instead, God calls us to glory in the cross, to rejoice in the work of Christ and his grace. And we admit we have no assets to invest in all that he's done. So that's the first negative when we try to achieve acceptance with God on our own, benefit, our own works is the loss of the cross. Second negative is this, the threat of a debt. Look again. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. I want you to circle that word obligated. It is also a financial term in the original language of the Bible. The word translated obligated there was used in reference to somebody who borrowed money and was obligated to pay it back to the lender. We know nothing of that, right? Yeah, you, you borrow money. I remember my very first loan I took. I was 18 years old. I bought a car. I didn't want my old junker that I drove through high school. Actually, I had four cars in high school, but that's another story. Um, When I got out of high school, I wanted to have a nice little sports car. So I traded in my junker and bought this sports car and had a car payment of like $180 a month. Every month. Back then, you would get a payment booklet. Anybody remember those things? You had a little perforated piece of paper, you tear that off, you put it in the envelope with your check, and you mail it off. Obligated. Some people refer to debt as a cloud of debt, right? Because it's always over you. The more you owe, student loans, car loans, boat loans, consumer loans, mortgage payment, every month it's a cloud of debt over you. There's an obligation you have. That's why I would say, get out of debt. But that's another sermon. This is related to spiritually. Again, this goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the message. God does not deal with us as debtors. He does not deal with us as a banker that has loaned us salvation. Oh, you better pay back all you owe. And that's what he's saying here. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Well, now you make one installment on the law. You're obligated to pay every payment after that. You're in debt. Now, there's really three reasons I want to show you why living in this mindset of indebtedness to God is dangerous. First of all, it's a form of slavery. When you have a loan, you're enslaved. You can't spend that money every month the way you might want to spend it. And worse, you can't be as generous to people in need like you might want to be generous because you're a slave to the debt. So this idea that we're living lives of service to pay back God, man, it's slavery. 
We are not spiritually indebted to him. Christ has paid the debt completely for freedom. Christ has set us free. Here's another reason it's, it's dangerous. It diminishes the Savior. And we've considered this some already. When Christ died for our sins to repair the injury that we did against a holy God, well, our debt was totally covered. And any effort to increase our righteousness, to increase our right standing, to add dividends to our account, it's an insult to the infinite value of our Savior. Here's the third danger. It neglects the work of the Spirit. It neglects the work of the Spirit. I want to park here for just a minute. This idea of working to pay God back is saying this. Essentially, God, you've done so much for me. Now I'm going to do a lot for you. And it overlooks this fact that not only has God saved us from the past, but presently he is the one who sanctifies us. And future, he is the one who is going to glorify us. It all is from God, every bit of it. Let me ask you, is there anything you can do in and of yourselves that is good for God? This week, 60 of us are going to be staying up late with a bunch of kids. Is that act making you more acceptable to God? Is it doing anything good for God? Notice how Jesus put it in John chapter 15. He said this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Then he puts an exclamation point on it. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. There is nothing that is good. There is nothing that is acceptable. There is nothing that is honorable to God that you can do apart from the juice of the vine flowing through you. Nothing. In fact, you, again, you go down a few verses here in Galatians chapter 5. And what does Paul write? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Do I do these nine things from dogged determination, from diligent self-effort? No. They're a consequence of the Spirit and His indwelling, empowering work within us. In fact, think about this. If you relate to God as someone who is indebted to Him for all He's done, then the very grace of the Spirit empowering you to work is compounding your debt. Uh, let me show it to you like this. Maybe you can follow this logical flow of thought. Compounding indebtedness to God, if you function under this mindset. Proposition A, I must pay back God for all he's done for me. That's the debtor's ethic. Proposition B, the only work we've just seen from Jesus and Paul, God will receive, are those empowered by the Spirit. Okay, so I'm going to work to pay God back, but his spirit empowers me. Here's proposition C. The spirit empowering my work is another grace gift from God, which further increases my indebtedness to God. Does that make sense? Every movement in my life towards God comes from God. It's him doing it through me. And if you live as a debtor to God, it just increases and compounds the debt. 
So in verse 3 says that the person who gets circumcised as a means of being accepted to God places themselves in the place of a debtor. The point that Paul's trying to make is we do not relate to God in that way. Our debt has been paid in full. But ultimately, what this view of God does is leads to this next, next thing, and that is the replacing of grace. The replacing of grace. If you take this yoke of the law upon yourself and you aim to achieve your own righteousness before God through what you've done, you're not standing in the freedom for which you were set free. You've replaced grace with your own self-effort. And he puts it like this. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, many misinterpret that last phrase of that verse, you have fallen away from grace, to uh, mean you lose your salvation. That's not what that means. Again, the context, the larger context here, he's writing to Christians. You have fallen away from the grace that you're to walk in. You've fallen away from the grace that God has given you. You're just trying to achieve things by self-effort. The, the point is, grace and law don't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. To attempt to mix some of the law, some of the righteousness with the grace of God, it obliterates the grace. Now, let me show you how these five verses connect together, uh, kind of in an outline. I've already given you an outline. This is another outline, just so you can see as we move towards a conclusion. Verse 1, the command to stand in freedom, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Then he gives these three negative results of this kind of legalism. Christ is of no advantage to you. You're obligated as a debtor to keep the whole law, and you, you negate the grace of God that has been given to you. You've been fallen away from grace. So if this is the command to stand firm, how do we walk in freedom? And that leads to the last point in the last verse, the scope of our hope. The scope of our hope. For through the Spirit, he says, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You are justified by faith through the Spirit. How are we sanctified? By faith through the Spirit. Now, positionally, in Christ, I know I am righteous. But practically, ethically, morally, I don't know about you, but I know me, I ain't righteous. Actually, I do know about you. You ain't righteous either. None of us are practically, morally, ethically righteous every moment of the day. There is this false mentality among some Christian groups that you can achieve perfectionism in this life. It's not true. If anybody would tell you that, it would be the Apostle Paul. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do? We can't achieve perfectionism in this life. But verse 5 here is pointing us to a future hope. We wait. What does that mean? It's coming. There's coming. This hope of righteousness. Though right now I am positionally righteous, that in God's eyes I'm in Christ, there's coming a day I will be practically righteous. When I will shed this old body, I will shed the impulses of the flesh, and I will be with Christ and be righteous. Now the key to this scope of our hope, what is it? It's the beginning of this verse. How do we do it? How do we walk in freedom? Very simple. Through the Spirit, by faith. Just as you received him, so also walk in him. How did you receive him? Through the Spirit, regeneration, by faith. 
just as you received him. Walk in him. Let me illustrate it like this. One of the joys of being a parent and now a grandparent, particularly of young children, is getting down on the ground with them at their level and playing with them. Are you with me? It's awesome to do that. Now, that means you do some things like play Candyland, which is absolutely pointless. There is no strategy to this game. There's no point to this game. It's ridiculous game, right? But you get down on their level and you play Candyland, right? You get down on their level and you get the building blocks out and you stack the blocks up. You get down on their level and you wrestle with them and, and you let them win. I still let Trent win when we wrestle, but it's okay. You get down on their level. But listen, you're done playing. It's time to put away the toys. Two options you have as a parent or as a papa. What is it? All right, we're done playing. Pick up all the toys, put them away. It's time to go to bed. That's one option. And the child may dutifully and out of obedience to the authority you have put away all the toys. You know what that is? Legalism. The other option is to get down there with them to invade their space, even make it a game. Let's see how fast we can put these blocks away. And then you know what happens? The responsibility to do the work becomes joyful. It becomes exciting. It becomes fun because the authority has gotten down on their level and is empowering them through his presence to do the work. This is the Christ life. It's not that we have a God who's up there saying, you better do this. It's that we have a God who has come to be among us, who has tabernacled with us. Jesus, the creator of the universe, came and took on human flesh. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit. And he comes down. And when we walk in the power of the spirit by faith, it is joyful obedience. That's why you have missionaries sacrifice their lives to go to the unreached. Because the power of the Spirit is in them. And it's not, oh, I'm making this great sacrifice. It's a joy. Because Christ, through His Spirit, is there with them every step of the way. VBS worker this week. You're not doing VBS to earn God's favor. You're not working VBS to pay God back for all He's done for you. Allow the power of the Spirit through faith Come down here with you and work through you just as Wade led us to pray that the fruit of the Spirit would function in us and through us and we will live lives of liberty. And perhaps the most succinct verse maybe in the Bible and for sure in the book of Galatians that shows this reality is probably the best or the most familiar verse in the whole book. And I would encourage you to commit it to memory and we'll close with this. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, this faith in future grace, this faith in the hope of righteousness that's coming, by faith in the Son of God, who what? Loved me. How did he love me? He came down to my level, and he gave himself for me. Christian, place your faith not in what you can do, but in what God has done for you. And this is 
the hope of righteousness. This is real freedom from the institution of bondage and sin. And that leads to my last thought. The life of faith is a life of joyful reliance on what God does for us, not on what we can do. Amen.